this is Swordplay. Alex, South Korea has banned Voice of the Martyrs Korea from sending Bibles and leaflets to North Korea in balloons. Alex, what is the strangest method you've used in order to teach the gospel? Okay, so this is a true story. I was selling my car, and these guys were haggling me and trying to get me to lower the price, lower the price. And finally, I said, okay, I will lower the price by another $100 if you do a Bible study with me. And they both looked at each other and said, we'll pay you full price. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, that's what you get for trying to peddle the gospel. No, that's terrible. All right, well, this is Swordplay. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ located in St. Paul, Minnesota. And we have with us on site today in Minnesota... The Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ. Yeah, this is this is great on location in Minnesota. So that's right. Nick's in my dining room, and I'm in my office. <laughs> and that's because of ambient noise. Um, we want to invite you before we begin to grab your Bible, open it to Second Thessalonians, and read the whole book, but specifically focus on. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, because that's where we're going to be today, and it is, um, it's an up, uphill battle for us. It's, uh, we got some heavy lifting ahead of us, don't we, Alex? We sure do, and uh, no time to spare, so we might as well jump into the lightning round. round. Here we go. All right, Alex, what is eschatology? Well, let me get my, my stopwatch ready. Hold on. Do, 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 do. Okay, go. Ask me again. What is eschatology? Eschatology is the study of end times, especially what filter and presuppositions we use when we're looking at books like Revelation, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 3, um, and the Olivet Discourse. Nick, when looking at eschatology, what is the historical approach? Well, it depends on which branch of Christianity, which epoch of church history you come from. But it's basically looking back into history to try and find how these prophecies were fulfilled in time. Alex, what is the Praetorist approach? The Praetorist approach looks at eschatology through the lens of the destruction of Jerusalem, meaning that when you read the Olivet Discourse, Book of Revelation, and other eschatological passages, you are seeing them through the lens of having its fulfillment pretty much uh, in the destruction of Jerusalem event of AD 70. What is the futurist approach? This is where you take prophecy and say it, it's going to be fulfilled yet future. You shove everything into the future. We're still waiting on some shadowy political figure to come out of a revived European Union. We'll discuss that more. But what is the idealist approach? The idealist approach is focused on using the Old Testament and Second Temple literature to interpret the symbolic meaning within any given prophetic utterance or vision. Thus, idealists do not want any eschatological uh, interpretation to be pegged down to just one event in history, but rather a cycle of events that can happen in any given generation. And Nick, what is the rapture? This is the belief that All Christians are going to be taken out of the world, caught up out of the world. Airplanes that are flown by Christians are going to fall out of the sky. Cars are going to crash into each other if if they're driven by Christians. And all the other poor schleps who didn't obey the gospel are going to be left here to basically fend for themselves. So, 
That was a lightning round. Man. Ooh. Okay. All right. Two minute lightning round. I think we did all right. That was six pretty uh pretty difficult things to summarize, but I, th- I think you get the the gist as we get into the rest of the episode. And we're there'll be recurring themes throughout. That's right. Well, Nick, first question we have is uh, chapter one. I mean, chapter two, verse one, talking about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, our gathering together with Him. This is bringing up something we already mentioned: the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Nick, what are we seeing here in chapter two? Is this the final coming of Jesus, or is this some sort of uh, temporal historical judgment? Yeah, I mean, it, it could be again, depending on what filter, what eschatological filter you read this with. It could be either. It could be a temporal judgment that is a judgment that happens in time, and you have a very rich history, a very rich tradition of that in the Old Testament, where God came in judgment on Egypt or Babylon or Assyria, and so in this case it could be coming in judgment on Jerusalem, destruction of Jerusalem, or it could be him judging uh, the Roman Empire, uh, or again, it could be an eschatological thing, an end-time view of judgment, and so we're still waiting on the final coming of Christ. It's a phrase which is kind of flexible, again, depending upon which eschatological lens that you're looking through. It should be noted here, and and we're going to go through this list here, but when Paul gives this list concerning what needs to happen before the coming of the day of the Lord, this list is incomplete, and there are very few details given. And I don't think it's because this was an incomplete revelation to Paul, but rather, verse 5, he says, look, I've, I've already told you guys this stuff, and so it's kind of a, a reminder. But uh, does that make sense? Yeah, I think especially as we continue to unfold the rest of the chapter and say, hey, if this is the historical approach, preterist approach, futurist approach, idealist approach. Uh, there's even a combination of mixing idealist with some of the other approaches that will unfold. It's a difficult chapter for a reason, and it's been a difficult chapter since the beginning of church history. We'll get into that some more as well. What's the next question, Nick? Well, how would... Okay, so verse 2, he says uh, that he doesn't want them quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, um, either by a spirit or spoken word or letter seeming to be from us. So what about this spirit, Alex? How, How would the Thessalonians have been disturbed by a false or demonic spirit feeding them false information. Well, Nick, I am reminded of 1 John, and he says, don't believe every spirit, test the spirits. Not every spirit comes from God, uh, but every spirit that declares Jesus has come in the flesh is a spirit from God. So you have this testing going on. Um, I take spirit to mean both in 1 John and in this letter to be demonic spirits, spirits that are out there speaking in the mouth of prophets, and yet they are what we would call false prophets, not because they're not truly connected to the spiritual realm. There are charlatans such as that then and now. But I mean people who are talking to uh, evil spirits. You might even... um, reckon it to the modern day uh, spiritist, the new ager who has the spirit guide, which tells them things and gives them special information. In other words, um, the doctrine and teaching of demons that's mentioned in uh, 1 Timothy, I think there's a connection here. I think that they are to be aware of false information coming from 
evil spirits through the mouths of prophets. This would have been even trickier in their day because you have, I think, a more uh, common uh, acquaintance with prophetic utterances, with prophets and speakers in tongues and interpreters of those tongues and people with gifts of the Holy Spirit. So I think it's just an extra warning to say, hey, uh, just because somebody says this is a message from God doesn't mean it is. There are evil spirits out there you got to watch out for you got to test and uh, see if this information is true or not so there are supposed to be other things to test this information with what do you think nick yeah I, especially when you were talking there about um in in the world of mediums they're called familiars these spirits that are familiar with people that's why people will consult a medium to talk to a dead loved one really they're not talking to the dead loved one but the spirit that was familiar with them and uh, very dark stuff very dangerous stuff and so uh, it could be yeah and I, I like the connection there to first john 4 about testing the spirits that was a critical component uh, to uh, for the first church to engage in and still critical for us we don't want to get caught up in uh, deceiving spirits and deceitful things like that, but rather we want to depend upon the Holy Spirit of God. So when we come to verse 3, now we start to unpack this, um, the things that need to happen before the coming of the Lord, before the day of the Lord. And two things are mentioned here, at least two things, uh, the rebellion or the apostasy and the revelation of the man of lawlessness. So um, let's start off here with this rebellion or apostasy. Alex, what is it? Okay, so we're going to try to filter this through the different um, interpretations. So if we're looking at it from the historical approach, you're probably going to see the rebellion, the apostasy, as this movement away from uh, apostolic Christianity into uh, the papacy and the catholic church and so you're going to see apostasy and rebellion in terms of that um if you're coming from uh the the preterist perspective you're going to see the apostasy and rebellion as sort of this unfolding of the jewish revolt against rome and the war that will take place uh from uh, 67 68 a.d and it'll be culminated with the jewish defeat and destruction of jerusalem in 70 a.d uh, a couple of other approaches out there, Nick. What are they? Well, there's. Here's what's interesting. Uh, Paul writes this epistle, early fifties. Most scholars say early fifties. So for them, it, the everything was a futurist approach, right? Um, well, sure, yeah. They uh, whether we're talking about the political revolt and the the Jewish revolt in um, late sixties to seventy A.D. or some. Uh, religious apostasy that was yet future for them but there are those today who want to shove this prophecy into the future even for us and which is kind of um, perplexing given the fact that this would have meant virtually nothing to them in the first century where we're still waiting for this future uh, this future political religious leader who arises out of a revived Roman Empire who's going to lead astray uh, people in a uh, quasi pseudo religious political movement 
And, and so that's, that's a, a rebellion, an apostasy away from true Christianity. Uh, the figure in the Left Behind series that does this in, uh, in Tim LaHaye's book, Left Behind, is um, uh, his name is Nikolai Carpathia. And he is this charismatic, mysterious political figure who rises out of a European Union and so and he leads people astray with he deifies himself essentially so uh, that is the futurist approach and I suppose the idealist approach would be something along the lines of there was for the Thessalonians there was going to be this uh, rebellion against God or an apostasy away from God and every generation has to be on guard against that. There, were, there could be a, an apostasy for us, uh, a mass leaving of the faith um, and going after some false religion. Did, did I nail that okay with the idealist? Sure, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, with the futurist, what you described specifically was dispensational futurist. Right. Um, there is a historical futurist approach which doesn't uh, attempt as much to take the modern-day geopolitical headlines and fit them into uh, prophetic utterances of the scripture. So the historical futurist doesn't put any kind of emphasis on Israel still being a special nation for God today. Um, They're just those who still take a futurist approach, but they're not as sensational as the left behind camp, which would be the dispensational camp. But otherwise, I think, yeah, you you, uh, nailed it. What's interesting, when I was... uh going back through the stuff that I have concerning um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, there's actually, um, you end up with kind of a blended thing with some of our perspectives in in the churches of Christ. Wayne Jackson, um, Burton Kaufman, um, they talk about, they approach like the man of lawlessness and the apostasy. They approach it historically, and and we'll talk about... um, the views, the various views, they they subscribe to the view that that the man of lawlessness and the apostasy was the rise of the papacy and the Catholic Church. Okay, but then they kind of lean toward a futurist perspective when it comes to the day of the Lord and the coming of the Lord, and say that we're still waiting on that, and that Christ is going to destroy the Catholic Church and the papacy with the breath of His mouth when He comes in final judgment. So you. It's interesting. You can even have like a blending of these things. Yeah, um, absolutely. That happens a lot. It, it, even with the Book of Revelation, people will blend different approaches, and um, sometimes that's that's inconsistent, and sometimes it's still logically workable and consistent. It just it, it gets uh, to the point where you kind of have to see case by case what's going on. But Nick, I think this leads us to our. Uh, tough text tough of the day. Text. That's right, tough text. Tough text of the day is who is the man of lawlessness? Who's this son of destruction? Again, what are we talking about when we see in here that this man has to be revealed? Who is this guy? So let's walk through some of the filters. I'll start with the historicist view. And again, it depends on which brand of Christianity, which epoch of church history you come from that is going to uh, color this filter for you. For example, the Catholic Church, when they talk about the man of lawlessness uh, today, they talk about how that was the rise and growth of Protestantism. 
um, all the the stuff that started with Martin Luther, John Calvin, those guys back in the 16th century. Um, that's those Martin Luther. He's a man of lawlessness, right? So that's that's the Catholic interpretation. There's also the Greek Church, the Eastern Orthodox view, where they find here a prediction of Islam, and so the apostasy, the falling away. That would be many of the Greek Orthodox members, um, the churches falling to Islam. And the man of sin or the man of lawlessness is Muhammad. And so he brings with him this apostasy. If you were a reformer, all right, so we already talked about the Catholic view. Well, on the other end of the spectrum, the reformers, Melanchthon, Musculus, uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin, even others later, uh, Albert Barnes, Adam Clark, uh, who were part of the Protestant churches, they argue that there are uh, that the that the the man of lawlessness is the papacy. The Catholic Church had no problem calling him that, but there were also others who said there are actually two men of sin. There's um, the Eastern Church, one for the Eastern Church and one for the Western Church. Uh, that is their approach to the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church. That's how they talked about it. Um, also, in the East, again, the man of lawlessness was Muhammad. In the West, it was the Pope. What's fascinating is that just about everybody views the restraining force, and we'll talk about that restraining force in a few minutes. Um, everybody in a historical view tends to see the Roman Empire as the restraining force. So, um, and out of the ruin of the empire would come this man of lawlessness. But uh, that's the historicist view. Alex, maybe you can talk to us about the preterist approach. So in the preterist view, uh, one of the strengths of this view is it always places its interpretation within the lifetime of the recipients of the passage. So for the Thessalonians, you mentioned before, this would be written in the early 50s, um, there's something in their future yet to unfold that they need to look out for. And so the preterist says that's the destruction of Jerusalem. That's the coming of the Roman armies against the city of Jerusalem to destroy it, to uh, burn the temple to the ground where not one stone will be left upon the other. So in the preterist camp, the man of lawlessness from Second Thessalonians 2 ends up becoming one of two people, sometimes both of these people, and they are Caesar Vespasian and Caesar Titus. So at the death of Nero in, uh, was it 69 AD, I believe, um, he commits suicide, and Rome goes into shambles. There's revolts and civil wars all over the place. Everybody was thinking this is the end of the Roman Empire. You had the year of the uh, three Caesars or four Caesars. We had Galba, uh, Obo, Vi Vitellus. Am I, is, I, I hope I'm getting those right. I'm just going off of memory here. Galba Oath of Vitellus, yeah, yeah, sounds right. Um, and finally, in 70 AD, Vespasian rises up. Uh, he's one of the generals, and he is declared Caesar, but he rises up with his son, Titus, and they are both declared Caesar at the same time. So uh, Vespasian... Uh, Augustus Titus, um, it was the same title for both Vespasian and Titus. So Vespasian eventually will die, Titus will take his place. Okay, all this is just to say that 
on their way to being crowned Caesar, historic, uh, historical records show from Suetonius, from Tacitus, from Josephus, um, that there were some false miracles that occurred. And then on their Titus is sent to Jerusalem to finish the destruction. Miracles occur there. And then when Titus destroys Jerusalem, he goes with his army into the temple before they destroy it. He sets up a pole. On top of the pole is an image, a carved image of his face and his father Vespasian's face. And the emperor cult performs a worship ceremony in which Titus um, and Vespasian is declared, they're declared to be God and Titus the son of God. And so you have this anti- Yahweh Jesus perspective it's the opposite side it's it's Vespasian and Titus in fact Vespasian even thought that he was the Jewish Messiah and he went so far as to try and kill anybody that he could find from the Davidic line to eliminate the competition so the Preterist perspective says man of lawlessness is Vespasian and Titus um, together and or separate and you can Google that online, and they have their explanation, and they'll cite their sources and all that. But that's the Preterist perspective, Nick. What's the Futurist perspective? This is probably the most popular contemporary view of the man of lawlessness. And what ends up happening is the man of lawlessness ends up being conflated with the Antichrist. That's not a new thing, by the way. Um, Alex, we were talking before we started about some of the early church fathers kind of holding, uh, from a very early date, holding to this idea that, right. the, that the Antichrist and the man of lawlessness... Irenaeus from the early 2nd century. Right. Um, John Chrysostom, others, they viewed the man of law... They conflated these prophetic passages in Daniel, Revelation, and here, 2nd Thessalonians. And But what ends up happening with specifically a dispensational premillennial futurist approach is you end up with the Tim LaHaye left behind idea of this mysterious political figure who is yet to come, yet to rise out of a revived Roman Empire, which is probably going to be the European Union or something like that. And and so this is, again, kind of the popular view and has caused all kinds of sensational claims to come about as a result of trying to identify who this man of lawlessness is from uh, Hitler to Reagan to you name it. Um, The list goes on and on of who the man of lawlessness people thought the man of lawlessness was and ended up being wrong about it. But um, this, this is again, kind of the predominant view today, but there's also Alex, the idealist, Right. Uh, perspective of the man of lawlessness, right? Right. So the idealist would say that the man of lawlessness uh, could have been somebody in their day that they knew who he was and they understood what the signs would be, what they would look like, who they would point towards. And so the Thessalonians had a man of lawlessness of their day, but the idealist would say, you know what? There's a spirit, there's a dark entity behind the Antichrist, behind the man of lawlessness, and that entity does not go away, even if the puppet, the human puppet in which he uses, does go away. And so the idealist would say, you need to look out for the man of lawlessness in any age, in any time, and he can't be pegged down to one event or one period, because there are the spiritual side 
of warfare in the heavenly places that continue on. So you'll see these cycles. That's why you can find a coherent interpretation of eschatology from historical, preterist, futurist perspectives. And it's because precisely that these things are cyclical. So that's the idealist approach. Well, let's uh, do a bit of follow-up here on this man of lawlessness. I mean, come on, Alex. I mean, isn't the man of lawlessness really just the Antichrist? Isn't that who Paul is talking about here? (laughs) Well, I mean, like you said, the early church fathers, they had a strong, uh, worked-out tradition by the end of the second century. That's early. That's early in church history that this man of lawlessness is the Antichrist. So... That is a strong early church tradition that gets conflated. Um, I would probably myself go more with the idealist in this particular issue, just because when you read First John, Second John, you have this Antichrist language, and he talks about how the Antichrist is here, but many Antichrists have come. Right. So what, how do you have a singular, but you also have a plurality? Well, through the idealist lens... It's because behind these antichrist humans are antichrist spirits. And this brings in the uh, spiritual warfare aspect that I think does continue on uh, through each generation and to today. And yet, I probably mix it. I'm a mixer. So I'm going to mix up preterist with idealist in filters and interpretations because I, I still think that this has to mean something special and important to the original audience and i think preterist just fits that so well but there are spiritual things i I have the supernatural worldview i'm a christian i see these things in the bible these heavenly forces those are still here so i guess i would mix preterism with idealism and my take on that what about you nick yeah I'm, i'm disinclined to conflate man of lawlessness with the antichrist for the reasons that you've cited. And I think John, what he had in mind is different than what Paul had in mind. But that's not to say, just as you mentioned, that there's, there is a, there are malevolent beings who want the church to go down. They want Christians to fail. They want Christians to turn away from God, to apostatize. And, uh, and they're going to do whatever it takes. And uh, but uh, to conflate Daniel's prophecy with the Revelation and with other Johannine literature and with Pauline literature like Second Thessalonians, I don't. I think that's uh, disingenuous. I don't think it's a good hermeneutical practice. And so um, when it, when Paul is writing about the man of lawlessness, I I tend to want to keep him separate from uh, the Antichrist and sure. who John had in mind. Um, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I think that's fair because if you if you don't allow the possibility for them to be separate, then what you're saying is a New Testament author cannot recycle or reuse uh, Old Testament language without meaning the same thing that the Old Testament writer had in mind. And I just think that's there's no reason for that. So, Paul's already written First Thessalonians. This is the sequel, Second Thessalonians. Um, 
they're probably about 18 months apart, maybe two years at the most, uh, from when Paul wrote first to Second Thessalonians. And he wrote about the coming, the return of Christ in First Thessalonians chapter 4. Here he is writing about it again in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Do we need to harmonize these passages, Alex? You know, it's hard not to. Um, if you're the Thessalonians and you see the language about being caught up together with the Lord in your first letter, and then you get another letter that talks about being together with the Lord, I think you're going you're gonna to put the two together. Hmm. So I have a hard time thinking the original audience would not conflate the two, that they wouldn't think that this was the same thing. Um, now, again, it's, it may not be possible to, to know for sure. But I would say if that's the case, then you need to be consistent with your with your view. So if you're going to approach Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians two with a preterist or historical or futurist or idealist perspective, then it it's going to automatically drag in First Thessalonians four, and this is where I as a Really just, I, I like the Predator's perspective, but I start to get uncomfortable when I start dragging in First Thessalonians 4 into the equation and saying, okay, this goes together, Mr. Preterist, how are you going to make this fit without giving up the return of Christ and the resurrection? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So I have a hard time with that. Um, what's your take, Nick? I mean, there, there's a lot of touch points here. Um he talks about in 417 of First Thessalonians to be together with them, and then he talks about being gathered together to him, and so being with the Lord forever. Uh, he says, you have no need to have anything written to you in 5 verse 1 and 2 verse 2 of Second Thessalonians. He says, you don't need, I don't want you alarmed by anything that was written, uh, a letter seeming to be from us. Um, so you have you have several of these um, touch points that it's hard to ignore them and it's hard to dismiss them. And yet that's what I'm inclined to do. <laughs> um, I, I see chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians and that section there on the return of Christ as being a future final return. And I see here in 2 Thessalonians 2... Um, a, a coming of the of the Lord in judgment, a day of the Lord in historical time to issue judgment on this mysterious man of lawlessness and and his whole movement. So again, it's hard to disconnect him because there's so many touch points, and yet uh, that's what I'm inclined to do. So, <laughs> well, I appreciate your honesty, Nick. Yeah, yeah, uh, but at the same time, uh, yeah, it's. It's a challenge um, to, to, to does, does Paul have in mind a single return? I think that's really what we're trying to get to here is when Paul wrote First Thessalonians 4 uh, and then months later when he wrote Second Thessalonians 2, did he have a single coming in mind? Was he referring to the same event in those two passages or or was he, was he writing about two separate things? It's, it's, I mean, to get into the mind of Paul, that's, that's a challenge, but yeah, it is. Um, well, Nick, I think, um, 
We will save First Thessalonians 4 for when we actually get to First Thessalonians in the podcast, and we'll yep. do a similar thing. We'll go through the different uh, eschatological lenses by which you can see these passages. You know, it doesn't matter what lens you use in the sense of, I don't think any one particular lens is going to cost you your salvation. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I think that um, they're all worth listening to, and uh, we're just going to have to ask the question, you know, what can the text sustain? And what can be uh, logically constructed and and defended with Scripture, and we're going to have to be open to to different ideas, even if they challenge us, even if they make us uncomfortable, even if we just don't like it. <laughs> so that's that's the problem. But you said, Nick, that everybody in the historical approach they agree that the restraining force was uh, the Roman Empire. We get to this idea about the restraining element. Uh, first it's he, uh, what, and, and then it's a he, a who, what's this restraining element against the land, the man of lawlessness? What is that? Yeah. So we're here in verses six and seven and you're right. He talks about it first as a, what, you know, what is restraining him? And then in verse seven, it's only he who now restrains it, uh, will do so. And so you have a, a change in, um, from a, a, a what to a who in the restraining thing. And well, again, what I found with the historicist perspective was that, yeah, everybody everybody pretty well believes it's the earthly empire of Rome, the Roman Empire that was keeping the man of lawlessness from doing what he would do. And so, um, again, from a, a non-Catholic perspective, with the downfall of the Roman Empire comes the rise of the papacy and the Catholic Church. And, and so that's, that's typically how that gets filtered out. But there are um, any number of suggested ideas to identify this power, this person that is restraining uh, the man of lawlessness. For example... Uh, there are some who say it's the Holy Spirit. There are some who say it's God's plan or God himself. There are some who say it's some unknown spiritual being. And I think that may touch on your um, the supernatural worldview that you're talking about with the idealist, um, the apostolic gospel or Paul. So there's, and, and what's interesting is, again, it's, it's difficult to find a consensus with all the different views. The fact that these various theologians across time and space have come to these different conclusions, I think that should show us we need to respect the difficulty of this passage. I mentioned it earlier that there's not a lot of detail given here uh, concerning this, and the the way this is structured in the original is it's, it's an incomplete list. Paul is just kind of shooting from the hip here, uh, and that's because, verse 5, he, he tells him, look, I, I'm only telling you what I've already told you before. Uh, verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So right, right. he doesn't have to go into a lot of detail, and we're left here, you know, 2,000 years down the line going, I wish you would have. <laughs> right. And we, that might help us out, but... We're putting together the collage and trying to make a picture. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's just... A bit about uh, what others have come to regarding this restraining uh, power, this restraining person. Well, Nick, um, once the restraint, whatever it is, and whoever is restraining, um, 
then you have the coming of the man of lawlessness, but he will not remain. He'll be removed right. by the Lord's breath and the appearance of his coming. What in the world does that mean? So I have um, a couple of references here in my Bible to uh, some Old Testament texts. One's in Job 15 and verse 30. The other is in Isaiah 30 and verse 33. And I actually want to just get that Isaiah passage, Isaiah 30, 33. Which says, yeah, for a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king it was made ready, its pyre made deep and wide, with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord will stream like sulfur from it. And um, there, that seems to be, it's the same, that breath of the Lord is the same kind of language there as used by Paul here in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 which may be indicative of Paul having that Isaiah passage, very similar to Job 15 as well. He may have that Isaiah passage in mind. And um, we were talking about the Praetorist approach. It's fascinating that you mentioned Vespasian and Titus and how those could be, or one of them could be the man of lawlessness in that perspective. They both died of fevers. <laughs> right. And so that breath of the Lord that steams like sulfur, I don't want to get too literal in the interpretation of the prophecy there, but these guys essentially were burned up with fever, and it killed them. And so, you know, here's the hot place that's been prepared for these guys literally in their life. Um, So that's... That's one view, but there's there's other stuff going on here, right, Alex? Well, I would say so, and you got to remember these guys are not working off of germ theory, right? right? So, how did they view sickness, especially when it seemed to come out of nowhere or upon a healthy person? Um, first, verse eight, when it says the breath of the mouth uh, of the Lord, breath there in the original language, the Greek is pneuma, and pneuma is sometimes translated breath. Numa is sometimes translated wind. Numa is sometimes translated spirit. And even when it's translated as wind or breath, it can be uh, used as a symbol for a spiritual being, a supernatural entity. And so in the ancient world, the ancient Near East of the Old Testament, even the Greco-Roman world of the New Testament, there are, in their worldview, spiritual beings who can cause sickness, especially when it comes to... uh, important uh, figures that have power and authority in the world. So this goes back to an idea in the Old Testament about God having a band of destroying angels. If you go to Psalm 78, uh, somewhere around the verse uh, 40 and 50, around that area, you will see that when it mentions all of the plagues that came upon Egypt during the Exodus, that those plagues were carried out by God's band of destroying angels. Mm. You go to Revelation chapter 6, there are these four horsemen that show up, and each of them uh, has a certain set of characteristics associated with them. Those are not new spiritual figures. Those are angelic figures of judgment that are used in the Old Testament, uh, even in the books that we don't have in our Protestant New Bible, like the Wisdom of Sirach. Uh, Wisdom of Sirach talks about God created four winds of 
vengeance or four spirits of uh, of of revenge of of destruction. So again, I I think this idea here, there's a specifically a being called Resheth. Uh, that was his uh, name in the ancient Near East, and he's this guy who shoots arrows of plague, and he's associated with the symbol of fire because that's how people felt when they were dying of a disease, especially on the battlefield. They were being burned up with this infection, with this fever. So I think that this is supposed to signal the activity of the Lord and the Lord saying to his uh, horseman, Reshef, to his horseman, Plague, uh, go do your job. I'll, so in my perspective, the Lord is the restraining force, and he's... Uh, He's holding the gates back from the horse, and the horse is chomping at the bit, and he wants to go do his job. So he, the Lord says, okay, now's the time. Boom, lets the gate loose, and the horseman whoosh, goes out, and he does his job. And I think there's a connection there to the Preter's perspective about Vespasian and Titus both dying from this infectious fever. So that's that's my perspective. Yeah, and so other lenses, the historicist view is... Again, fascinating. I mentioned it earlier about how um, they almost shift to a futurist approach when it uh, when you get to this verse here about the Lord destroying him by the breath of his mouth. Jesus will kill or slay. The Lord Jesus will do that with the breath of his mouth. And uh, for example, Wayne Jackson says that you know it's, since they interpret the man of lawlessness and his whole movement as the papacy. Uh, and we didn't even talk about the, the temple and, and how that could be interpreted. But um, since they view it that way, the historical perspective does, then they take this coming of Jesus, and it's the final coming. Um, it's the second coming. And when he comes back, the Catholic Church and the Pope, they'll be destroyed by the breath of his mouth. The futurist approach, I think what they do is... Uh, they'll connect this text here in Second Thessalonians and the killing him with the breath of his mouth. I think they connect it to in Revelation 11, where you have the two witnesses that seem to be symbolic of Moses and Elijah. Right, right. They uh, they show up and they're able to pour fire from their mouth to consume their foes. And so <laughs> I think I think if I remember right, they they make that connection there. Um, but uh, I'm interested to hear about the idealist approach, Alex, if you could speak to what they see here with Jesus killing the man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth and bringing them to nothing. Yeah, I think the idealist approach would um, say that this is something you've seen a couple of times in the Old Testament, judgment on Egypt, judgment on uh, Assyria, judgment on Israel, judgment on Babylon, um, judgment on Judah. In these times of judgment, uh, what is the uh, fire? The fire is the word of God, and it's the judgment coming through the word of God to let them know, hey, you're going down because I warned you and you haven't repented, and now your cup of iniquity is full. It will be poured back out on you. You must drink it all the way to the dregs. So the idealist would say, hey, there is a judgment happening probably in view of the Thessalonians' near lifetime, but don't take that to mean um, this doesn't happen again and again and again. It will happen again. It has happened again. And that's the thought for the idealist. So the breath of his mouth would be interpreted as probably the word of God, which comes through prophetic utterance uh, by the judgment of God. They would also probably view it in terms of, again, this spiritual 
uh, activity happening in the unseen realm where you have God using uh, destructive spirits to do their thing in the unseen realm so that it will affect the visible realm that we live in. Because you got to remember, in the worldview of the Old Testament people, New Testament people, there wasn't a disconnect between heaven and earth, spiritual and physical. It was connected. And when something happened in one realm, it affected the other realm. As it is in heaven, so it is on earth. So that's one of their filters that they're looking at this through as well. Um, Nick, you mentioned the, the, we didn't even touch on what the temple of God is. This is just yeah. a little tidbit of, of an interesting note, is that uh, the temple of God in this passage, from the preterist perspective, is going to be the temple that has yet to be destroyed in Jerusalem. The temple of God, from the historical perspective, is going to be the church, the true spiritual temple of God right. that the Pope will come and sit in and take over. The temple for the futurist perspective is going to be a rebuilt literal temple sometime in our future still yet today. And uh, just to show you that, even just that one phrase, the temple of God, can come to three different conclusions. <laughs> so, I mean, and they're all they're all uh, valid in a sense. I mean, so because there is a, there was a physical temple, the church is the spiritual temple, and who knows? Maybe there will be another physical temple. But which lens you're seeing it through changes everything, Nick. What, what are your thoughts? No, I think that's uh, that's exactly right. So the Praetorist, since it's the the temple in Jerusalem and the destruction in 70 A.D., um, when it says that uh, he's going to exalt himself against every so-called God object of worship, that's I think when we talked about it, um, you'd mentioned that the the event is when the head of Vespasian is set up in the temple on right. a spike or something. Right, right. <laughs> um, the temple of God for the historicists is the church, and so that's what the Pope does. I have a I have a a sheet, uh, a document of four pages where it's just line after line, quote after quote where uh, the Pope is equated with God, essentially, and so proclaiming himself to be God, that's um, the papacy, and that arises out of the apostasy of the church. That's the historicist view. Um, the futurist, again, it's that shadowy historical or shadowy um, political figure who arises up and sets himself up in essentially his church and deifies himself and demands worship. He's the beast and you got to get the mark of the beast and all this stuff. So, um, that's, that's how that kind of shakes out with that temple business there in verse four. Right. Um, right. So let's, let's go down here. All right. And once we've worked through all of that, <laughs> um, and there's so much because verse nine, he talks about the false signs and wonders, all wicked deception, um, you mentioned the the false signs, which was interesting. The false signs of like Vespasian, I read a few of those, and some of them were kind of hokey, like uh, like a tree somehow got uprooted and then it got put back. Um, someone said they saw two birds fighting in the air, and then another bird came and beat the victor of that fight. It's just like I was like, how are these signs, right? <laughs> but but there were other different signs that went along with Vespasian. I don't think I read those from um, Tacitus, maybe, because I think I read Suetonius. 
Um, there were other signs that were allegedly performed, false signs that accompanied Vespasian, right? Right, right. Like the healing of a blind man, um, the healing of a withered man's hand uh, who was uh, paralyzed. So, I mean, those are the same things that Jesus did in which he, he told people, if you don't believe me, at least believe the signs. And here you got 40 years later after Jesus says that, this antichrist figure doing the same sorts of signs but not by the working of of the holy spirit but rather by the working of satanic power the historicist if it's the church or the the catholic church and the papacy in order to become a saint in the catholic church you have to have done i think it's like two miracles that's three I, they keep minimizing it. I think it, now it's down to one, maybe. I don't know. But <laughs> you got to have a miracle in order to become a saint, to be beatified. Um, so there's that. The futurist, hey, this Nikolai Carpathia guy, he's going to be doing these false signs. And uh, in the book, he gets shot in the head. Spoiler alert, sorry. He gets <laughs> shot in the head and dies and then comes back to life. And they track all that through Revelation. Um so yeah, that that's how some of those get filtered through. But I let's talk about this deluding influence um, in verse eleven. Uh, therefore, and we should read verse nine because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Right. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion or a powerful delusion, uh, so that they may believe what is false. Alex, why in the world would God do that? Um, I think it's part of the judgment process. I mean, once you once you harden your heart, then God will also harden your heart, kind of like we see mm-hmm. with Pharaoh. Um, God will take people who have rejected him, who have rejected his word, and he will force them into a corner then so that they are left with no other outcome other than to be judged. I like the story of Micaiah in 1 Kings 22, where King Ahab from the south and Jehoshaphat from the north, uh, they're creating an alliance to go to war, uh, team up together in war. And they're like, well, let's let's consult the prophets. And they're like, hey, do you have any other prophets, any prophets of Yahweh? She's like, uh, there's this one guy, Micaiah, but I don't like him. He always says bad things about me. Right. So they're like, well, go get him anyway. So they get Micaiah, and Micaiah's like, Hey, Ahab, uh, you're going to be so victorious. Just go to war. You'll be all right. right. No problem. <laughs> the Lord is with you. And Ahab's like, wait, Micaiah, quit messing with me. Wh- How many times do I have to tell you? Tell me the truth. Yeah, just tell me Tell me the real truth. What's, what's the vision? And Micaiah says, okay, here's the vision. I was in the Lord's throne room and... The Holy Council was having a debate on how they should deceive you so that you'll be destroyed. And finally, a spirit stepped up before the throne and said, Hey, send me out. I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all their prophets. And the Lord said, That's a good idea. Go do it. And so he has. (laughs) That's right. So the Lord intentionally deceives as part of bringing about the judgment process. But it is not until those who are being judged have had opportunity to choose uh, to repent and to choose to listen to the Lord. So that's that's what I think, Nick. That's exactly right. I, they refuse to love truth and so be saved. They 
they made their choice. And essentially, it's a it's kind of like Romans one, uh, similar thing where uh, the the invisible attributes of God have been clearly perceived in all creation since the beginning of time, but they chose otherwise. They uh, chose the creature rather than the creator, and so God has given them over. He says that three times in that chapter. He's given them over, given them over. And um, that's kind of what I see here. God essentially says, you want a little bit of chaos? I'll give you all the chaos right. you want. And it's your choice. You've you've made that choice, and there are consequences with that. And so they believe what is false. Speaking of choice, uh, though, Nick, yeah. how are we chosen from the beginning? Verse 13. Yeah, and um, there's actually a textual variant here. Um, so there are manuscript differences. And so some manuscripts say, chose, uh, chose you from the beginning. Uh, and, but my English standard, depending on a different manuscript tradition, says they chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Um, and so and I think that kind of flavors this. There could be, I mean, there are some who take that and uh, approach it from a Calvinist perspective and say, see, you were chosen from the beginning of time. Uh, even before you were born, you were chosen, and there's nothing you can do to avoid that choosing. But, of course, when you ask, well, who's the chosen, they say, good question. Um, <laughs> and they kind of have difficulty with that. On the other hand, and I think this is really what Paul is saying here, is you were chosen as the first fruits, chosen um, uh, as uh, the first fruits in Thessalonica. You were the first converts, all right? And... Um, you you were chosen, selected by God. How? Well, when they chose God, he chose them. That's kind of how I've viewed election. It's a selection process of we, we make uh, our selection. God has already made his selection if we will choose him. So that's kind of how I work through that. And you say... Uh, yeah, I always take the corporate election viewpoint, meaning uh, that um, that which was foreknown, that which was chosen was Christ Jesus himself before the foundation of the world. And he became the arena through which God said, my people, those who will be saved, those who will inherit salvation, they're going to be those in Christ. So the foreknown and the chosen aspect is Christ himself. Now, who will be in Christ? That is up to whoever responds to the gospel. That's up to you. Because how are we called to be a part of this chosen group well verse 14 it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our lord jesus christ romans 10 17 faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of god so i think it's the call sent out to everybody to make a choice and if you choose to have faith in christ to give your loyalty to him then you now have stepped into the arena which was already foreknown and chosen before the foundation of the world, that is Christ Jesus. That's my view, corporate election. Are you saying we have free will to make that choice, Alex? You Pelagian or semi-Pelagian? <laughs> <laughs> I, I not only believe we have free will to make that choice, I also believe that the foreknown element was Christ Jesus himself, and that I also believe that God does not know who will be saved or lost when it's all said and done. You open theist, you. <laughs> uh, let's. Oh, all right. So we get through all this, right? And we are 
um, nearing the end of this, oh, diligent listener. <laughs> yeah, good job for hanging in there with us yeah. if you're still there. <laughs> so what do we do with all this, right? That's a good um, question. My head is spinning. What, yeah, what should we do in light of this man of lawlessness discussion? Um, and also, I think, especially from the futurist perspective, there's a lot of failed prophecies there left on the table. What do we do with all this? Mm. Nick, I keep looking at the last verse of the whole chapter. It says, comfort, uh, well, it's part of a prayer, right? May the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us, given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Mm. What do good works and good words have to do with the man of lawlessness why is paul changing the topic here nick because we can get so hyper here's one reason we get so hyper focused on what's coming down the pike what's coming down the line uh we get so focused on on that that we forget we're actually here for a purpose we forget to be present in the moment and and so that's what we should be focusing on every good work and word we don't need to get focused on the words of others right he even says that back there's a connection there but uh, back to verse two a spoken word seeming to be from us you don't get focused on on the doomsday don't get uh, cries don't get focused on what these other guys are running around crying the house is on fire any of that stuff focus on doing good um, and, and focus on the work at hand. That's really what we should be about. Um, also, he says, if we back up to verse 15, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And that's that's a, a key thing as well, to stand firm in the faith. Right. Uh, don't turn loose of that. There's, that's a temptation. That's a real temptation. He's, ta- he's talked about the apostasy and the, the rebellion, going astray, going away from God. Stand firm in that. And um, But uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about the traditions here. Um, and, and, you know, th- there are some today who really emphasize tradition. And, right. Um, but... Uh, uh, do we, are we are we missing out on something if we don't hold to the traditions that other folks are saying we have to hold on to? Uh, you know, Nick, I'm reminded of uh, good old Ed Wharton, and he said the traditions are the totality of apostolic teaching, right? Hmm. And the word tradition here doesn't mean doesn't mean this is your you know like. Here's our tradition. Here's what we do at Thanksgiving. This is our tradition. This is what we do. It's like, no, what we're talking about here is an authoritative tradition, a set of teachings and practices for the church. And um, we use the word of God to help us figure out what are those traditions. But the other element brought in here is the word of mouth. And the Catholic Church, their view is that their traditions they have the traditions written in scripture which they go by but they also have the traditions of the catholic church big t not little t big t traditions where they say the this too is just as authoritative and binding as what we have written down in our bible why would they say that 
They say it because they believe those traditions to be handed down by word of mouth. And so the question becomes, are we, are we missing any teachings like the Catholic Church says we are? Are we missing out on these word of mouth teachings that the Catholic Church says they have that we don't because we only go by sola scriptura? And if we do go by sola scriptura, do we even have all the letters? These are tough questions, Nick. Do you have any thoughts? I'm persuaded we have everything that we need. Um, I think there are other books. You know, in, in our conversations uh, in these podcasts, we've talked about um, extra biblical literature, stuff that's not part of the canon of Scripture. Um, those are helpful and beneficial Um but if you grab a, a Catholic Bible or even a, a Greek Orthodox Bible, uh, they're going to have extra books. Um, they're going to have uh, Tobit and Judith and uh, Wisdom of Solomon, things like that. Um, here's, here's how I've approached those. They're called apocryphal books. Um, they are beneficial. They're helpful, but are by no means inspired like the 66 books that we have. And so I'm persuaded when it comes to, do we have, do we have all the letters? Yes, we have all the letters that we need. Of course, the question is, is this everything that Paul ever wrote? And I think based on what we do have, the answer is no. He wrote other stuff. There's proto-Corinthians. There's uh, 1.5 Corinthians or... Laodiceans. Yeah, exactly. And so... Well, what do we do with that? Well, uh, I don't know if I've said it on this uh, podcast before or not, but while those writings were Paul and Paul at his best, they were just Paul, and they were not inspired like the 66 books that we have because, uh, again, this is exactly what we need. It's all we need. So, Nick, And you say? So, Nick, if I hear you right, you're saying that what— through the centuries, the final form of the canon, um, do you believe that then to be all we need and and therefore that there was sort of a providential working of God and his spirit to make that final canon come out? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. I'm not a, 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 a deist when it comes to the canonicity, that God sent the Holy Spirit dropped out the documents and said, hey, good luck figuring out which one's which, right? <laughs> um, I think I think he was, um, here's a word we don't use very much, providentially involved in that. I think he was superintending that process and, and ensured that we got exactly what we're supposed to have. No more, no less. Um, so that's, that's my take on it. Do you have a different perspective? Um, well, I think for sure I'm with you on the idea that we have what we need and also that we should read other literature that was in the mind of the original audience so if, if the Thessalonians or if the early church was was reading uh, stuff that's in the Apocrypha uh, which the Catholics call deuterocanonical or if they were reading pseudepigrapha if they were reading certain church fathers um, I want those things in my head too I want to know what they know and I think that's going to help me with interpretation. So I'm sort of, uh, is it inspired or is it not inspired? Who knows? Uh, for sure, the 66 books we have, I think, are inspired. The other books, are they inspired or not? 
uh, I'm not concerned about that. I just want to know what it says. I want to know if it helps the biblical Christian worldview, if it brings something to the table that we need, that fills in the gaps, that answers questions, and can be sustained with the 66 books that we have. I want to take a look at it. And so for me, I'm I'm going to take the investigator uh, position. And um, I'm not going to call the canon closed. Um I'm going to I'm going to take the investigator option and I'm going to say you know what there might be more truth out there even in a non-inspired writing. And so I just need to keep reading and keep studying. That's what I'm going to say. So I think we'll end with this last one. Sometimes it's a big deal in certain circles, sometimes not. But you read the prayer from verses 16 and 17. And it begins, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, right? He's praying to Jesus. Are we allowed to do that, Alex? Uh, I always thought we were. Um, (laughs) I didn't even (laughs) know this was a thing. Why is this a problem? Here's the thing. I've met brothers in the church, uh, one faithful 90-year-old brother, Um, when I was an associate minister in Arizona, talked to me about how we pray to the Father through Jesus. We do not directly address Jesus in prayer. And I think it was a bigger deal back in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, Wayne Jackson, I mentioned him earlier, and Gary Workman kind of had a Uh, correspondence going back and forth about this issue. Gary Workman denied it. He said no. He started off an article about going to a high school graduation, I think it was, and this little Baptist girl got up, led the prayer, and she prayed to Jesus. And he said that's a big no-no because you pray to the Father through Jesus. Wayne Jackson said not so fast, and he put together this list, and there's several passages in the New Testament where you read people praying to Jesus directly. Um, I think there are still some pockets in our fellowship who still hold out on this, that you can only pray to the Father through Jesus, you pray in Jesus' name and that sort of stuff, but I think it's overall an easy case to make that the Apostolic College had no problem doing this. Right. He's God. Jesus is God to the glory of the Father, after all. Yeah. And and you have precedent for this. Of course we can pray to Jesus. So Interesting. there is that. Yeah. Interesting. Well, Nick, um, this was an intense podcast. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot going on there. Absolutely. Well, we will jump back in on the next episode for chapter three and uh, let me tell you chapter three is a lot easier to filter through than chapter two but i tell you one thing whatever the thessalonians eschatology was whatever paul's eschatology was it did not distract them from good works and good words and if our eschatology does that if our eschatology does not help us to do good works and to do good words, then there's something wrong with our eschatology. That's what I think, Nick. I'm going to say amen to that. We He talks here about being called through the gospel. We still are called to issue that, uh, that we're still called to issue the call, right? That's we're right. still called to 
to keep the main thing the main thing, and that is that there are lost people that uh, need to hear the gospel, and we can get tied up in trying to figure out just when and where and the whys and wherefores of all of the final coming, second coming, however you want to call it, but at the end of the day, it's all about uh, helping people come in contact with Jesus. So, The word of the Lord needs to spread rapidly and be glorified. That's the opening of chapter 3, so we'll jump into that next week. In the meantime, we have plenty of episodes before this. Go and download them all from iTunes or Google Play. Search Swordplay. All one word in iTunes and Google Play and download all the episodes to your particular device. Also, please give us a rating in which uh, will help people to find our podcast, write a review. Hopefully they're kind words, but uh, uh, do what you <laughs> do what you think is right. Hopefully the podcast is helping you. But leave a review and ask us a question, and we'll do question episodes where we'll read your question on air and answer it for you. Um, you can send those questions to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's again, swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, Nick, any final thoughts? As always, thank you for listening. This is another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.